The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. But reserve forces are really particularly valuable on the defensive side, and particularly for forensics, where they kind of come in and go when needed. But when it comes to offensive operations, Ultimately, conducting offensive operations, what is most important is knowing the networks of your adversary better than they knew themselves. So it requires often a great deal of time and investment, and as we previously talked about, this long and tedious process of conducting certain operations. If that is the case, then sometimes this plug-and-play solution of bringing in reserves when needed doesn't really work, especially when you then also have to deal with certain practicalities such as um, security clearances. I'm Alvaro Marañón, fellow in cybersecurity law at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 29th, 2022. Cyberspace is the domain of modern warfare. It is a popular headline in recent times. State and non-state cyber attacks have given support to this notion. But beyond vague national cyber strategies and new cyber commands, Not much is publicly known about a state's military cyber capacity. To get a better understanding of the current state of militarization in cyberspace, I sat down with Max Schmitz, senior researcher at the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich and the director of the European Cyber Conflict Research Initiative. We explored Max's new book, No Shortcuts, Why States Struggle to Develop a Military Cyber Force. We discussed the barriers of entry for states to participate in cyber conflict, how one should go about thinking about military cyber capacity, and how external actors can influence a state's cyber capability development process. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 29th. Max Schmitz on why states struggle to develop a military cyber force. There has been an abundant amount of literature around the topic of cyber policy, especially cyber operations, in lieu of Ukraine and Russia. What led you to writing this book, Max? Has it been an idea a long time in the making or more so accumulation of ideas? Well, the idea for this book actually started now almost 10 years ago. Back then, I was working on a couple of different cybersecurity topics, and I was meeting uh, the cyber commander of a European command that has recently established their command. And uh, I was quite struck. I kind of met up with him and I read lots of news stories about how these whiz kids were hired by the cyber command and uh, were now uh, actively looking for vulnerabilities to potentially conduct uh, cyber operations. And then, yeah, when I 
met up and uh, he was so kind to also show me around, I realized, well, whoa, really a lot still needs to be done here. Lots of empty desks, which is, I guess, no surprise at all for anyone who has been more involved in these kind of organizational uh, structures and setups. But yeah, I saw they were really still struggling with some of these kind of basic questions. On the one hand, what are we actually setting the cyber command up for? What is the real strategy here? But also, on the other hand, what are the capability requirements really? And so that meetup really led me to develop two research agendas. The first research agenda was about the motivations for countries to establish a cyber command and the motivations to operate potentially in this domain. And then the later research agenda, which is this book really, is about, okay, but what are then the requirements to establish such cyber commands and how can this change over time? It's fantastic because you move past a lot of the assumptions that we kind of just take for granted, especially in the cyber domain. But to begin, what exactly are cyber effect operations? So cyber effect operations are those operations that seek to disrupt, deny, degrade, and or destroy. So it's the four Ds. Cyber operations more generally are those activities in which an act against unauthorized access to a computer network or system to, to do something on that. And you can typically distinguish between three different types of cyber effect operations. The first ones is denial of service. Uh, most prominent ones are perhaps against Estonia or Georgia in 2007, 2008. Um, then you've got your uh, data manipulation operations. So these are often wipers that wipe data off uh, servers or systems. And then you've got your system manipulation uh, activities, of which most prominent is of course, a Stuxnet against the nuclear centrifuges in Atans. And how does this relate with espionage? Often we see a overlap or distinction. If there is any, uh, it'd be great if you could go into that. Yeah, there's absolutely an overlap between the two. Um, many of the stages of a cyber effect operations are indeed the same as a cyber espionage operation, right? You still need to understand the networks you're targeting, uh, gain access and then potentially escalate uh, control on the box that you're on. And so very much in the later stages, you often see the differences uh, in when you're going to deliver what we call your, your payload, that is really the objective. That said, you, of course, do see often significant differences in who is responsible for operations. So when it comes to espionage, it's, of course, the intelligence agencies uh, writ large that are still very much responsible. And the moment it becomes an effect operations, it's the military. And that leads to some really fascinating questions as to when the military should take over from the intel uh, agencies. Is this at the stage only at the very end, when you're actually delivering this effect? Or is this already much earlier on, when uh, you also have the militaries gaining access to systems and uh, or at least probing them? Um, so that's an open question there. And different countries have arranged this in, uh, in different ways. Yeah, you, you speak in great detail about this later, about the U.S. and how the intelligence community kind of shaped uh, the military aspects. But before we get there, one arising trend I copped in seeing in your book is the issue of vagueness and I guess the lack of transparency around uh, the details with cyber warfare. And you describe this data paradox. Can you hash this out a bit? Yeah, the paradox that I discuss in the book, it comes from the fact that on the one hand, as an analyst, you might feel that there is way too much to analyze. 
So I mean, I'm sitting in front of my, my laptop on a daily basis, and I just only read all the cyber activity that's going on in Ukraine, whether this is data leaks or potential other wiper that is used or um, some other story. Just following that alone is a full-time job and kind of passing out what is relevant, what isn't relevant. If you then think about all the other criminal activity that is going on, the many reports that are written in the private sector, it becomes very tough to make sure as a, as a full-time researcher you have a comprehensive assessment. At the same time, of course, there is also much information uncertainty. You know, many of these key operations or areas, we don't know what we don't know, and we also do know that oftentimes uh, some key events aren't published. And so for the analyst, it's really trying to figure out, uh, on the one hand, on what you can write, and when you write on a certain subject, with how much certainty can we actually come to certain conclusions. And speaking about research headaches, one that also arises is the different naming of organizations or actors by like APTs. Is there a rhyme or reason to this that you've come across? Or is there utility with this divergence in naming? So for analysts, we often get our research insights from the commercial threat industry, uh, threat intel industry. And indeed, different threat intelligence companies such as FireEye or CrowdStrike or also Microsoft and Google Tech will use uh, different naming conventions for the clusters of activity that they are analyzing. And yes, they actually do have, to some degree, very good reasons for doing that, because they often observe different types of activity. One may have uh, really good uh, telemetry that the other company doesn't have. And so you're basically giving your own names or labels to certain uh, threat actor activity to ensure that you basically saying, well, this is based on our analysis and the kind of picture that we are seeing. It also gives them then the opportunity when, let's say, one company thinks that maybe this group is splitting up or evolving, and the other threat intel organization doesn't think that that's the case, you basically keep your authority to say, well, you know, we're going to stick with our name. Whereas if you're taking the name of someone else, uh, you don't have that control anymore. There are also most obviously marketing reasons. Yes, there is a clear benefit of having your name in the media, and perhaps not that one of another company. And to some degree, that might lead to bad practices. At times, uh, a company might want to rush to be the first to publish a report on a certain activity group to also make sure that their name or label that they've given to an actor is most frequently mentioned. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best report out there. And now we shift to your interesting dual observation, especially given the headlines we see with cyber Pearl Harbors and other impending attacks. Can you walk us through this? Yeah, so the dual observation that I start off my book with is the following. On the one hand, what we have seen is a growing number of countries that have institutionalized their military cyber efforts. So they've not only published a cyber strategy and a cyber defense strategy, but they've also published or they've also often established a military cyber command to conduct these cyber effect operations. And, and whilst we have seen this trend with at least 40 to 50 countries publicly doing so, at the same time, we see relatively few countries 
actually conducting cyber effect operations. So the point here is not that we've seen few effect operations, but we've seen few countries conducting effect operations. A similar but follow-up question uh, that you bring up is the, the conflicting discussion with two narratives, that cyberspace empowers weaker actors and the government's argument that small military branches are responsible for cyber attacks is insufficient. How do we interpret this? Is it this binary? No, it isn't, because cyberspace, as I've titled one of my chapters, is not a level playing field, right? So there are different requirements for different types of actors. And we often forget that when we ask, you know, what are the barriers to entry in this space? Well, if you are a government that doesn't care about collateral damage, uh, doesn't care too much of any other undesired effects, uh, doesn't really think about complying to international law, may not feel the need sometimes to have its effect operations clearly coordinated with the intel, all of these kind of constraints that particularly many responsible cyber powers face, then operating in this space is much, much easier. So we see a disproportional increase of requirements based on each of the constraints that an actor faces. And playing part in these constraints, what role do national cyber strategies play here? Are they binding or are they more so a form of signaling or that it depends on the state? That's a fascinating question. And to some degree, I haven't explored this sufficiently in my book. And clearly, your latter point on, on signaling is an important one, right? Because when we think about capability development and signaling in this space, it's famously hard to parade computer code on the streets of Moscow or Pyongyang. And as a result of it, you may argue that signaling through either strategy development or institutional development is even more important in cyberspace than it is in the conventional domain. And so clearly, strategy development and publishing that has an important signaling function, not just to your adversaries, but let's be clear also to your allies. In a space where many of your allies are often still figuring out uh, how to operate, developing a strategy like you've seen in the US uh, with uh, persistent engagement and defend forward also sends a signal to allies as to potentially where a country may think their allies uh, and which direction their allies uh, should go. So that's a clear aspect uh, there. And I think, yeah, there is, of course, strategy should normally guide uh, activities. What we have seen early on were these super generic strategies that were uh, published. Our country, for instance, will seek to deter cyber attacks from our adversaries. What is really positive is that I think some of these strategies have become at least a bit more explicit uh, in trying to connect uh, certain ends with means and also be more explicit in terms of what types of threats they do seek to prioritize versus others. It'd be great if you could uh, give us a bit of more context around some two different states with their, I guess, application of these national cyber strategies. And also, to what extent has this become popular? Are there 20 countries that have this? 10? So it's hard to put an exact number on it. Um, and of course, uh, for a large part because of um, conceptual differences and also because of a level of, of secrecy, of course, in which uh, countries operate. But what we do know is that at least, as I mentioned previously, 40 countries have publicly established a military cyber command and uh, also, as a result of it, often develop a strategy around that. Now, we do see significant differences 
in the way that countries are rolling out their strategy across a number of different dimensions. So an obvious contrast is between what we see in the U.S. and in many countries in continental Europe. So with the U.S., you've got a strategy of persistent engagement and defend forward that doesn't just focus on potentially deterring adversarial activity in peacetime, but also potentially in disrupting adversarial activity in peacetime. So taking away opportunities for adversaries to act. There is also a clear and strong capability development that has gone on for a decade with now U.S. Cyber Command having a significant budget to focus on tool development and talent management. At the same time, when you look at many of the continental European countries, you see a different focus. The focus is still very much on deterrence and peacetime. And the cyber commands actually only really come in in case of war, where then the cyber command is is, uh, deployed or gets a specific mandate from parliament or other body to operate uh, in this space. And the budgets are many, many, many times smaller. And that's not just because of different size and country, but of course, that comes also because of its uh, differences in mission set. And driving these cyber commands in your research of these cyber policies, is there often an overlapping concern? I know you said responding to warfare is one, but how quickly are they established between the strategy and the command centers? Is it generally pretty streamlined or is there a lot of delay as we've seen more recently? Well, the big question when it comes to the establishment of these cyber commands and their strategy is about talent, about people, right? When we think about capability development in this space, and I lay out this framework in the book, I call it the Patio framework, people, exploits, tools, infrastructure, and organization. People are clearly the most important. And so the question is also to what degree you can develop still this talent that you have, given the mission set of a certain cyber command. And you see that some countries struggle with that more than others. If you have a cyber command that in peacetime is not allowed to do intelligence collection, because that's then in the realm of the intelligence agencies, and can only fight in wartime, and in wartime is also not really allowed to gain access to systems but only allowed to achieve an effect on those systems. Well, then you may question, how are you going to develop your talent? They can do lots of trainings. They can go to lots of exercises. But it's hard for the talent to really nurture skills on a day-to-day basis, like a cyber command might be able to do that does have a peacetime mission and where there are a much wider set of authorities. Could you further explain this framework you discuss, in particular people? Often in the cyber domain, we talk about the need for a diverse and multidisciplinary workforce, but that, again, also is just tossed around. What specifically is needed with the people or what type of environment? So when we think about people, what we often forget is the timing in which many military cyber commands were established. So many military cyber commands were established after the financial crisis at a time of austerity and where there were significant budget cuts in the military. And so you saw in countries saying, well, you know, we have to significantly reduce 
our army, we need to get rid, rid of, for instance, our Leopard tanks, or we need to uh, reconsider whether we're going to buy uh, the F-35 uh, from the US. Uh, but then at the same time, whilst you saw these budget cuts, there was also this feeling, well, we're going to invest in cyber as a perhaps, uh, you can say, cheap substitute. And also in a way, well, you know, with cyber, we can still be at the forefront of military war fighting uh, that is only becoming more modern and only uh, focuses on, on smaller and smaller units. Now, as this development has taken place, you saw uh, not only countries over time realizing that this was a mistaken assumption, but also realize that they often made mistakes in the recruitment and training of their personnel. Because what happened with this downsizing of the general military forces and the establishment of a cyber command is that the talent, the technical talent, was then pooled into one or perhaps two organizations, right? So you're bringing your technical people from the different uh, subunits to one cyber command. Now, in a way, you might think, oh, that's a good idea. We at least don't have to lay off those people. But at the same time, you create this perfect recruitment platform for the private sector. So many of them then, after a year or two, are not going to stay. And then you have basically created this funnel uh, where much of your key technical talent has been lost. That also makes the situation a little bit tricky when it comes to partnering, and particularly on training, with the private sector. Clearly, collaboration with the private sector is essential. But there is a danger of having these early training courses that you've seen in a variety of different uh, countries that were provided by the private sector. And they say, you know, uh, we provide this training course and you can even do an internship with us before you start in your respective cyber command. Well, then, you know, many, many people who have started in the cyber command kind of stick and say, well, actually, I want to work for them. For the, and so it also becomes this recruitment tool. So it's a very tricky situation with, uh, with no obvious solution. So that is quite a tricky trade-off, but it also speaks to the importance of the financial constraints. And a two-part question for yourself that you discuss in the book is the types of constraints and how states interpret these constraints in developing their national strategy. Yeah, so what I do in the book is I create basically a two-by-two. Political scientists, and I'm a trained political scientist, love two-by-twos. And on the one hand, I look at constraints. And as I previously said, more constrained actors, it disproportionately increases the resources to actually operate in this space. When we think about constraints more systematically, we can think about strategic constraints, but also organizational and legal constraints. Now, when we create the two by two, you can say, okay, some actors are way more constrained than others. Um, but equally, you have, on the other side of the two-by-two, two, the resources. Some countries have, of course, way more resources to overcome those constraints than others. Uh, if you think about a highly unconstrained, resourceful actor, which is the most dangerous, I would put Russia in that bucket. If you would think about a highly unconstrained, but certainly early on, not resourceful actor, that's where you will see North Korea coming in. And if you think about constrained and resourceful, I would certainly put the U.S. pre-2018 in that bucket. But what's interesting is this box of highly constrained, low resources. 
And in simple terms, I think that's where the majority of countries currently are, particularly across the Atlantic. They are highly constrained in that they really, really care about only conducting cyber operations at a specific point in time, have a very narrow strategy, strategic outlook as to when uh, these operations should be conducted. Um, Their legal understanding, often, of course, widely so, prevents them from operating where they are super concerned about undesired impact and where you have a often dominant intelligence agencies that is afraid that some intelligence collection opportunities are lost. But whilst they are so constrained, you know, they've poured relatively few resources in their cyber commands, creating now a what I call a uh, almost paper tigers. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't operate at all, but it does mean that you have many of these organizations that exist on paper and, yes, have appointed maybe a general at their cyber command that uh, has a couple of stars on their, on their shoulder. But you may question to what degree, yeah, they can be at the moment effective in cyberspace. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn 
to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So moving beyond constraints, how do actors navigate this field, especially in the targeting process? It's really not as easy as saying, let's focus on X networks and do something next week, right? 
That's correct. Often cyber operations have very long lead-up times. And in fact, that's where most of the resources go into. A example that has been used perhaps way too often, but it's worth, I guess, reiterating is Stuxnet, where when you look at the capability development there, you know, the cost wasn't necessarily in developing the eventual malware, but the cost was in this super long planning process from understanding the Iranian networks and in uh, tons, um, making sure you indeed get access then mapping out those networks, and then also emulating those networks, right? Where the US and Israel have allegedly uh, rebuilt uh, these centrifuges that they were, they were took them from, uh, from Gaddafi, rebuilt the Iranian ones to test and retest their worm, which all goes to show that when we think about uh, many of, particularly the high-end cyber operations, when you want to achieve a specifically desired effect at a given point in time, uh, the planning can become very, very tedious. And in particular, I know this it's a great example because despite the millions of dollars they spent on making sure it's contained, it's still spread, correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's it's crazy. No, absolutely. And I mean, in that sense, you can make a strong case uh, against self-propagating uh, malware. Uh, if you think about norms of uh, responsible behavior, uh, one of the things that you may really want to put high on the list is avoiding any form of self-propagating malware, even if this uh, has a payload that is only triggered uh, for very specific systems or very specific nuclear centrifuges. Because what we indeed saw with Stuxnet that got out uh, also infected systems in the U.S., perhaps uh, the payload wasn't triggered, but it still costed millions in, in cleanup. So, yeah, it, it leads to interesting questions around responsible behavior. It also leads to interesting questions on how some of these effect operations are used vis-a-vis intelligence operations, right? So what we saw with Stuxnet is that it was part of a much larger cluster of operational activity and malware. So some of the less Familiar names are, are Doku, Doku 2.0, and to some degree also Flame, Mini Flame. Um, there were quite a few of them out there at the time. Now, you may question to what degree some of these intelligence capabilities were discovered if it wasn't for Stuxnet, uh, where you had a highly, in the end, visible effect operations that was much more likely to be discovered, even in the cunning way that they did. But as this uh, operation, as Stuxnet uh, had a significant code overlap with some other intelligence collection platforms, it also led to this domino effect where there was, was a much wider loss of, of capabilities. So, yeah, Stuxnet uh, today uh, and for policymakers and for analysts is a, in some ways uh, a gift that keeps on giving in, in the sense of analytical angles that you can uh, that you can analyze here yeah hopefully that rubicon isn't crossed again uh but it's it's very useful absolutely you also speak of another type actor one that that you would say encompasses most most of the world uh and in particular holland and you speak about how they have high constraints but really have invested the time and resources what does this example illustrate the example of the netherlands and i've 
picked it not to be annoying to, to the Dutch, but indeed more to be illustrated. They're great. They're great people. Indeed. And, and, and I'm Dutch, so I can <laughs> yeah. say this uh, for sure. No, you know, the reason, one of the reasons why it's an interesting case is because when many in the cyber community think about the Dutch, they think about the incredible computer savviness and demonstrated capabilities that they have. The intelligence agencies were famous uh, for their hacks of cozy beer and fancy beer around the uh, DNC hack. Uh, they have done uh, some incredible other counterintelligence work, such as uh, the OPCW hack. So really, like when we think about the Dutch, we think about a super advanced cyber actor that ranks high in uh, cyber power indices, such as the one of uh, the Harvard Belfast Center. But the reason why it's interesting is, well, we shouldn't confuse what the intelligence agencies can do and what the military can do. And the moment we start to split up the two and think about their differences in mandate, we see how this mandate then also subsequently influences capability development. And that goes to the earlier point that I made. You've got an intelligence agency that of course, also still um, in the Netherlands, quite significantly legal constraint, but can operate in peacetime and can, in that sense, also develop its talent and maintain and retain its talent. However, when you think about the military with such a narrow mission that doesn't have the ability to do reconnaissance in peacetime, gain access to foreign networks to potentially see what they want to target, in wartime, they yeah can only operate in wartime with a specific mandate. You then you know are immediately also constrained in the way that you are going to organize yourself and develop your talent. And that's a really quite illustrative case that you see across many countries with a similar mandate. And the moment you then have this as an example, it leads to lots of other and additional questions. Okay, so then if you maintain this mandate because you believe that's the right one for a military organization. What can we do to overcome still these constraints and make sure that we can develop uh, the talent that we have? And that's that's quite tricky. So the Dutch have considered a couple of uh, things. One is, uh, well, we're going to rely a bit more on cyber reserves, so reserve forces. And you see other countries doing that too. But reserve forces are really particularly valuable on the defensive side, and particularly for forensics, where they kind of come in and go when needed. But when it comes to offensive operations, ultimately, conducting offensive operations, what is most important is knowing the networks of your adversary better than they knew themselves. So it requires often a great deal of time and investment, and as we previously talked about, this long and tedious process of conducting certain operations. If that is the case, then sometimes this plug-and-play solution of bringing in reserves when needed doesn't really work, especially when you then also have to deal with certain practicalities, such as um, security clearances. So there you see limits. And the second, uh, for instance, what the Dutch have also done, like many other countries, is, well, we should do more exercises. And I think that's, in principle, really good. But what we see with even the more advanced cyber exercises that exist, such as an international one like Lock Shields, organized by NATO CCD COE, is that even on 
for this exercise, it's hard to really practice your hacking skills, considering that it's difficult to emulate the uh, actual uh, environment in which you might be operate in, in, in real life as well. And then lastly, um, there is interesting questions around you know, the integration between the military and the intelligence. So in the case of the Dutch, they are focusing on now on, on cyber mission forces. Uh, whilst they use the same term, it's a slightly different setup than in the U.S., but also that comes with difficult questions around the integration of some of your military officers with your intelligence officers and uh, what they are allowed to do. So there is no easy silver bullet or way out here. And it's a struggle that, um, as a result, many countries still face today and and will face the, the coming years uh, ahead. And it's definitely one that's current in play in the United States. We we definitely see people pushing against the dual hat, but people in favor, and you know it will continue to develop. Yeah, and and of course with the dual hat, so it depends also where do you want to have integration taking place, right? There are benefits of having this at the highest level because then clearly you can think about the intelligence equities versus potentially the other equities revolved in in conducting effect operations. Um, but there's also something to be said about, you know, more dual-headed positions at lower levels, right? To what degree should we have operators that uh, maybe in the morning are intelligence officers and in the afternoon are, are military yeah. officers? Yeah. And also there, that, that is a question that is, I think, uh, at least as relevant. And a- another incident that came up was the famous law of congressional hearings that you cite in your book and how it would take them like essentially 30 minutes to just to explain what the agenda should be. And I guess like, again, this illustrates the asymmetry in the cyber domain where we have responsible actors imposing these restrictions upon themselves. But I guess to me, this illustrates the power imbalance between state and non-state actors. And I guess the utility of having this semi-autonomous group. But you also cite some drawbacks with this, correct? Letting non-state actors have a larger role? Yeah, that's a very good point. And indeed... I, I thought to open up with the loft because anyone who has seen this hearing and you can still play it out on YouTube, it's such a visual, interesting hearing where you see them uh, sitting there. It's surreal, like out of a movie. Exactly. And, and uh, yeah, and describing this to at that time, especially a group of policymakers with not having, of course, hearings on the subject on a, on a, on a weekly or, or monthly basis. And yeah, it shows the differences that either constrained or unconstrained states have, or indeed what some non-state actors have versus states. And it leads to two questions. One is, okay, then if states are so constrained themselves, to what degree can they then rely on non-state actors to conduct cyber operations for them? And that's a question that I only address at the very end of the book. And then the second one is a more general question that I don't really address in the book but uh, one that uh, I'm particularly interested in right now, which is simply, okay, what are the resources then that non-state actors should have to, uh, to be effective in this domain? And to what degree can you, can you operate independently without state involvement and cause significant havoc? On, on the second, yeah, I am, I am particularly skeptical for more responsible cyber powers to rely on what some would call cyber mercenaries, such as Tim Maurer, others would call uh, cyber proxies. And the reason for that is because of a trade-off that uh, you will necessarily have. 
Uh, when we think about this type of principal-agent relationship, with the state being the principal and the, and the non-state actor being the agent, we know from the academic literature that uh, you run the risk of, so to say, agency slacking, where the agent, uh, i.e. the cyber proxy, is not doing what the state wants, when there are very high opportunities or very high degrees of potential information asymmetry. And this is what you really see in this space. It's really hard for a state to control these non-state actors to specifically know uh, what they're up to at a given moment in time. And above all, even whilst these information asymmetries are high, it's often and also uh, not easy to punish them in case they do an activity of which the state doesn't want them to do, especially if they operate outside of their territory. So it's not, you know, you, you're, lo- you're losing so much control over the operational activity that it's highly unrealistic to expect, uh, you know, particularly many of these, I don't know, European cyber commands in the future to rely on, on non-state actors to conduct cyber operations for them. Yeah, it definitely becomes a little bit trickier with attribution and also with like the collateral fallout we've seen with spyware and, you know, it's running havoc in Europe right now. Yeah, and so so it's it's good to kind of distinguish, right? One is to say you can have non-state actors running operations for you. And the other, which is a really relevant question, to what degree can non-state actors help you in developing your capability, right? And then we have to kind of pass out what we are talking about here. So what I developed in my book is this framework that I previously mentioned called the Patio framework. People, exploits, tools, infrastructure, and organization. Those are the five key elements to develop an offensive cyber capability. And when we then think through this is the question, how can the private sector or another non-state actor supply in any of these five elements? And one thing that I think is, is important to recognize is that the focus has primarily been on the exploits and tools where we have seen some opportunities, but there are also some significant disincentives for sharing, particularly, or or for trade. And it's not as efficient as uh, some people have thought it to be. But where you see the biggest potential contributions from the private sector is actually on the infrastructure side, what many people see as the perhaps most boring part, but perhaps also one of the most important elements of developing capability. So what is the infrastructure side? It's, for instance, in developing a cyber range where you can make sure that countries can test and retest their capabilities and also can develop their workforce. And then the importance of infrastructure, like from the private sector especially, how does this impact the organizational structure versus the actual infrastructure in your framework, which has two big distinctions, correct? Yeah. So when we think about infrastructure, I distinguish between two different types of infrastructure in the book. The first type of infrastructure is your infrastructure that you're using for a specific operation, and then you can say almost throw away, or you're not going to use it after anymore. Um, So you can think, for instance, about your command and control infrastructure that you're using to communicate with your target system. But then there is the more significant infrastructure that uh, you are developing that you're not going to throw away after one operation. Um, so this is your, uh, your cyber ranges, which um, you use to test and retest your capabilities to develop your workforce. It is also, um, most importantly, perhaps your target 
infrastructure. So what we mean here is these mapping exercises that give cyber commands or intelligence agencies a very good idea of what they could potentially target in the future. Now, it's that second where we're talking about the costs of developing that are often not in the millions, but uh, in the hundreds of millions. And people uh, forget that. Um, so when we think about you know, where are the costs of developing an offensive cyber capability, people think about the procurement of maybe exploits and tools, where we are really amazed that a organization might uh, spend half a million to a million on a certain exploit, but we often forget uh, the amount of costs that go into uh, setting up these cyber ranges or maintaining simply certain uh, databases. So that's the kind of on the infrastructure side. And you can see, considering the cost of establishing such uh, infrastructure, there is a, also a financial incentive, of course, a greater financial incentive for the private sector to play a significant role and to acquire significant contracts. So moving forward regarding the development of cyber capabilities, what are some processes that you'd say could expedite this? Uh, is it just improving technology in general, getting the people in the right places, or, or is there more to that? There are a couple of things that can make a cyber command more effective in the future. And in the book, I discuss three. The first one is perhaps the most basic one, which is learning over time actors can become better as they are doing potentially more operations and starting to figure out how to do certain things. You can very much see this with, for instance, the case of Iran, where early on the use of certain wipers, such as Shamoon, made some very basic mistakes. Now, they still make sometimes some quite basic mistakes, but uh, you see that they have learned and potentially share best practices between teams, uh, which helps them improve their operational capabilities. The second is one of, of scale. And uh, scale is one that comes in on the infrastructure side, but it can also come in uh, simply on the organizational side. So the moment you're starting to really develop your cyber mission forces, you can also allow for more specialization that you weren't able to do before. And then the third one is the broad category of technology. And the big question here is, well, what is AI going to do? Is this completely... Solve all. Exactly. Is this completely going to transform uh, cyber operations or will it merely be an add-on uh, to what we see today? And, you know, uh, I kind of come down on saying, well, uh, AI is a double-edged uh, sword. Clearly, there are some advantages on the offensive side, whether this is in understanding target networks, whether this is in finding vulnerabilities, whether this is in potentially some social engineering techniques where it's easier to maybe find your way in through uh, you know, the use of you know, deep fakes. And you can see this in the further development of malware. Um, so there are clearly offensive benefits, but you can also say, well, you know, um, there are defensive benefits as well, not least in the aspects around vulnerability discovery. So it's kind of like an open question to what degree this in the future will lead to more offensive advantages or defensive ones. I guess to close out and looking forward, what are some other emerging trends with capacity building to look out for? Uh, states will continue to cooperate and share and I know you speak about the very lightly touched upon or discussed 
issue of arms transfers. So I'll save you from that. But uh, in your opinion, what's what's the lookout for? One thing to look out for is the divergences in cyber postures across the Atlantic. So what I previously mentioned is we do see differences in which cyber commands are currently set up amongst allies. And these differences are not just differences in levels of maturity. These differences are, so to say, sticky. We shouldn't expect they will change in the near future as countries, so to say, catch up. And that leads to questions to what degree these differences in postures allow for potentially allied friction and might reduce potential opportunities for allied cooperation. And, you know, in some ways, I think it might not lead to any issues where you can also argue, well, different countries more generally have different roles, whereas, you know, the US may have much more of a hegemonic role where it operates not just in cyberspace, but in all the domains much more globally than other countries. And so, you know, if it also takes up a more active role in cyberspace, that doesn't really matter much. In other ways, you can say, well, you know, if one country has a very different understanding as to where you are allowed to operate and where you aren't allowed to operate, you can see that that can lead to diplomatic friction and to other issues. And so, there are opportunities here, both bilaterally between states to come up with the right frameworks for cooperation. Um, but there are also more opportunities, I think, at the NATO level that are insufficiently explored, where NATO really has a role to play in coordinating some of the activities that I hope they will do in the future. And then lastly, you know, I I've said this not two times, and I think it's worth saying in the third time. When we think about capability development, the most important element are the people. And that means that when we think about capability development, it's about you know the recruitment, retention, and training of your talent. And what we have to think about in the future is to what degree allies can do this together, because it is a costly endeavor. Um, but it's also one that I believe isn't necessarily a zero-sum one and where we can really kind of expand the pie. And I know this is somewhat maybe unfair to ask, but the, the U.S. and European allies have a already existing framework to discuss and understand each other. But what type of signal does this send to the countries outside looking in, the countries who are developing it, let's say along Latin America, and how do they view this? Do they view it as, is it too late? Should they adopt a similar model or is it a mixture of both? Uh, so Alvaro, I think this is a really interesting question. One of the things here is, you know, to what degree do these countries look at two different models? Do we want to now take in a deterrence model that many of the continental European countries have, or do we want to follow much more of a persistent engagement model? The second is, to what degree can some of these differences be exploited? And the second one is one that I've written, already written on before. Perhaps the more mature adversaries might find ways to explore potential friction between allies, where you can say, well, you know, if you want to operate in networks of certain allies, uh, what does that mean for the US and how they're able to kind of disrupt this activity? Or to what degree uh, does that mean that uh, these countries yeah, have troubles coordinating and disrupting this activity in the future. Thank you, Max. You're welcome. A pleasure being on the show.
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperations with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts.